Matthew chapter 6. And we find ourselves in roughly the middle of our Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. And what mountain this was, we don't precisely know. But it's not critical to know exactly the place. It's the content that we pay attention to. Matthew chapter 6. And the Lord Jesus, in his discourse of really walking his people through, his disciples, walking them through what life should be like, naturally brings them to the subject of prayer. And so he gives them first some ways in which we should not pray. He gives some bad examples and then leads us to the model prayer. So let's begin with verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's ask God's blessing. Our Father in heaven, you've told us that your word is like a fire. And so this morning we pray, according to our need, you would warm our hearts at this fire, or refine our thoughts and our actions, so that we might be more like our Lord Jesus. We ask your blessing in his name. Amen. I finished writing this message sometime yesterday, so we're all going to be hearing it for the first time. (laughs) But I would like to lead you through uh, something of an exploratory trip through this passage to point out the fatherhood of God. I want to camp out on that subject particularly. And the reason we're going to do so here is that if you take the larger context in which we find this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, as the writer of this book, 
is particularly concerned to drive home to the Jewish mind that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the promised Messiah. And he will take time to lead the Jewish mind through that concept. And time and again, he will either he'll take time with the genealogies. Do you understand where this man came from? What is his heritage? What is his lineage? Matthew takes time to give more extended explanations to the Jewish mind that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the promised Redeemer for his people. And so, Matthew now lets us know that Jesus is on a mountain delivering the law to his people. When was the last time the Jewish people received instruction and law? 1,400 years prior, Moses went up in a mountain and came down with the law of God. But there, where we were given, or the people then were given, thou shalt and thou shalt not, this lawgiver, whom the writer of Hebrews describes as greater than Moses, says, blessed, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so he pronounces to those in his kingdom blessing and happiness as they follow him. So that's the lawgiver as he stands before them or is seated. And as he gives this extended discourse, I think naturally it comes up then, how should we pray? And this this question of how we should pray, evidently, uh, or it may have taken place at another time, or it may have been right here during this discourse, because we're told in Luke 11 that someone specifically asked Jesus how we should pray. And, you know, I think that's a question we've all had. And we are given a model for how to pray. Because this is is an essential component of the Christian life. But as we dig into this praying, the thing that should strike us is, if Jesus taught us to pray, what was the title he gave to God above? And it doesn't, he doesn't teach us to pray by saying, God Almighty, or Most Magnificent, Lord in Heaven. Though those are fine titles and we may pray that way, yet as this great lawgiver, greater than Moses, leads us into a deeper knowledge of life before him, he leads us to say, Our Father. And so it's that fatherhood of God that I want to hone in on this morning. And we'll take just a few moments to do that. But let me just follow with some words of a man far better uh, preacher, speaker, and writer than I. J.I. Packer, in his work Knowing God, said this. You sum up 
the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So let's take for the next few moments this walk through to see how we view God as our Father in prayer. And all of this was prompted uh, for me several months back when I was visiting with some Christian uh, leaders. And a minister said, you know, sometimes I listen to how people pray. And of course, that's immediately alarming. (laughs) But he said... I'd like to hear how people pray to God their Father. I want to hear what the relationship is like or how they view God the Father. And so, let me give you a thesis, as it were, or a point to the, the message this morning. Because I don't want you to be confused. Are we talking about praying or about the fatherhood of God? We're pointing at the fatherhood of God, but specifically as we see how we pray to Him. The thesis of the message then would be, we should pray to God with reverence and submission and dependence that befits trusting Him as our loving, capable Father. And so... I want to look into uh, the three requests that are here. We find these words, Our our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That could be viewed as a request. But let's get into that, uh, those aspects of fatherhood that really uh, I want to camp on. Give us this day our daily bread. Next is forgive us our debts. And third is lead us not into temptation. So you see here, God our giving Father, God our forgiving Father, and God our delivering Father. He is giving, forgiving, and delivering for His people. And that comes out of this passage. If you look back then, He is our Father in heaven. So he must give to us out of his capacity to give. Heaven cannot be impoverished by the needs of earth below. Heaven is a place of abundance. That is where God dwells. So he gives out of his capacity to give to us. He gives also, because he is in heaven, he gives out of his foresight. He sees in advance, and Jesus says that in verse 8. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. A few years ago, as I was reading through the book of Revelation, a book that continues to perplex me, the one thing that I drew from that was to notice that when trumpets sound, or there are thunders or thunder rings, lightning, then something would take place on the earth. We have the tendency 
to suppose that we are here, down here, doing things and living life and creating history, and history sort of proceeds from down here upward, as though God's going to react to what we're doing. But the view from Revelation is not that at all. In fact, history proceeds from the top down. It's kind of a, almost a vertical thing, rather than a horizontal. I do this over here, somebody reacts over here. No, no, no. God is actually, actively, really, and truly ordaining and decreeing the events of this world. And if he does it with leaders in this world, he certainly does it for you and for me, his dear children that he loves so well. So, out of his capacity, out of his foresight... He also gives to us in holiness, where we say here, hallowed be your name. God does not give capriciously, as needed, sometimes. No, no. He gives to us the best things. It struck me recently that I need to be praying more in our family to our Father in heaven for the best things gifts. It's fine and we should and we're instructed here to pray for our daily bread. And so we have prayer requests like I'm looking for work. That's a part of this prayer right here. But let's also remember to pray beyond that for our to our holy father for giving us the best gifts like peace and trustworthiness and long suffering and kindness. He is a holy Father, and He can and He does give those gifts. So He gives in holiness. He gives to us for our daily bread willingly, because we're told here He is a King. We read here, Your kingdom come. So if He's the King and He rules over all, then no man, no force, compels Him to give. He does this willingly. Out of his abundance. And according to his holy nature. He gives with authority. Because he is a king. Again. And so he gives to us our daily bread. And according to our needs. For our body. For our sustenance. Out of his capacity. His foresight. His holiness. Willingly. And with authority. And he gives effectively. Because we are praying here that his will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there isn't a a gap between what God in heaven intends to do and what God on earth gets done. What he intends to do in heaven and what he decrees to happen on earth are the same thing. God is not ineffective in giving to you and to me, but he gives effectively. I think that's probably the view that one woman had as she stood on a cold street in London many years ago, the story goes, in which she was handed by a charity a piece of bread and a cup of warm soup. And she said, supposedly, all this and Christ too? She understands God gives to her effectively, really and truly.
But I can hear some objections. Uh, Perhaps the scriptures say that God gives us our daily bread, but popular culture may think otherwise. This was over 15 years ago now. I don't know much about this cartoon. Bart Simpson, who's he? I don't know. There's this sense. Anyway, I think it's probably not something many of us know much about or should know much about from what I've, I've heard. But I remember picking up on this that there was a, a, a little strip, a cartoon of the family sitting down to, to a family meal, which they probably didn't do very often. But I guess the dad says to Bart, hey, why don't you pray? And Bart says, dear God, we bought this food ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Now, is, is that what's really happening? Do we just need jobs and work and we go out and buy our food? Or does God give us our daily bread? What about the people who really have a lot of money? What if they have a lot of resources? Do they need to pray for God, to give them their daily sustenance, their daily bread. I think Matthew Henry said it well when he said, the greatest of men must be beholden to the mercy of God for their daily bread. And so I thought of some examples. We just recently, I guess in the past couple of years, come through the Great Recession as we called it. On March the 2nd, 2016, just a little over two years ago, John Raymond, the CEO of a Houston private equity firm, Energy and Minerals Group, sent a notice to his investors saying he would no longer do any business with a man named Aubrey McClendon. McClendon, an Oklahoma-based fracking pioneer, had built Chesapeake Energy into the country's second biggest natural gas producer, and he was on the verge, McClendon, of an astonishing fall. The day before Raymond sent out his memo, that would have been March the 1st, McClendon had been accused by federal prosecutors of rigging bids for drilling rights, a violation of antitrust laws. EMG, now this uh, John Raymond, the CEO, uh, had poured more than $3 billion into McClendon's newest company, American Energy Partners, and now EMG was in danger of being pulled down with McClendon. These are very serious allegations, and EMG takes this matter very seriously, John Raymond wrote. That same morning, March the 2nd, 2016, McClendon went to his office, sent a few emails, then ditched his security detail and climbed into his 2013 Chevy Tahoe. From American Energy's headquarters, he headed north out of Oklahoma City. Less than 20 minutes later, as he approached an overpass, his car swerved from the right lane, veered across the road, and slammed into a bridge abutment at 78, some reported 88, miles an hour. McClendon, who wasn't wearing a seatbelt, died on impact. This from the Texas Monthly, July 2016. Just four years prior to his death, so that would have been the year 2012, by that point, McClendon had amassed an antique boat collection worth $9 million plus, just in antique boats. 
he had an extensive wine collection bragged about by many. And he was an influential part owner in the Oklahoma City Thunder, an NBA team. But in the space of four short years, that was 2012, marking his zenith, that high point, in the space of four short years, his wealth had been reduced 75% as Chesapeake Energy failed and fell and as American Energy Partners failed. He went from having $1.2 billion in net worth to $300 million. And then, though his death was ruled accidental, investigators were never conclusive that it wasn't a suicide. Do big shots need to pray and ask for their daily bread? Yeah. Because it can all be swept away in a moment. We look to the Lord daily for his loving provision. I can hear one other objection, possibly, to the Lord's daily provision and care. And I can hear someone say, well, that's just not my experience. Life has been such a struggle for me to piece things together. My health has failed. My marriage is struggling. My kids don't know me or care about me any longer. Whatever the story is, financial struggles... And we've all got our daily grind that we're struggling through. And life is complicated. And I can hear someone saying, no, 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 that's just not my experience. That that God just provides daily for my needs. Well, is your experience the right yardstick? I don't think so. The love of God cannot be measured by your personal experience nor mine. Unless you want to speak of your personal experience in calling on Jesus to wash away your sins. There is the love of God for you and for me. It's measured by the cross. It's measured by God's actions, His promises, and His word. Not by our experiences. I've... I've spoken to those people who are tragically bitter over things that have happened in their lifetime. Seems great, of great misfortune to them. And so they have said, God doesn't love me. God's not with me. God is not for me. Brothers and sisters... Look again to the cross. God loves you dearly and deeply like no other. So he is also, praise God, not only our giving Father, but our forgiving Father. He is our forgiving Father. And so we ask him to forgive us our debts, followed by that phrase, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This leads to some thoughts. How is he our forgiving father? Well, if he's forgiving us for transgression or sin, then surely he must have observed us. And so he does. He observes us all. He is our father in heaven, looking down upon us, knowing what we do. 
the psalmist was really clear with this in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. So there is no place we can go where God will not see us. Men, women, boys and girls, God sees us all. He's ever present and he knows. And this, of course, is not just for judgment, but also for blessing. The Lord loves to commend his people for their obedience and their diligence and faithfulness to him. And he does so. But he is observing. In fact, let's just admit, I was having this conversation with someone in the church not very long ago, and we were talking about what it's like now with our personal devices. These uh, cell phones and iPads and iPods and whatever else it is they make these days that we all have with us so much. And I made some comment about I'm not even sure there's a whole lot of privacy any longer. And he laughed and he said, oh no, there's none. But if you think, or I think, that the NSA or Snowden or WikiLeaks knows anything, <laughs> they're way behind God on His perfect knowledge of everything we do all the time. Right? they got nothing. They've got nothing. They only know a little bit. But the Lord knows even our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so, if He is in heaven observing us all, and He has a kingdom, which we read here as well, then it means He rules by law. So everything we do or say or think is measured by a true and perfect standard. And I'm actually glad to know that for God there is no identity politics. <laughs> rich people can't talk about poor people's problems and poor people can't talk about rich people's problems because I don't share that identity and therefore I don't know anything to be known as true. That's maybe modern day lingo and thought, but it's not so. There is objective truth and there is objective right and wrong and that is God's standard and it's the standard by which he judges, judges us all. But his intention is not to condemn. If he observes us all, and then he has encouraged us to seek forgiveness, then what is he doing? He's observing and judging that he might have mercy. That is his intention towards you and me, is to have mercy not to condemn. I am so thankful for that. I'm fearful if condemnation is his plan or his goal. It is not. It is to forgive. Praise God for that. So he does in fact clear the guilty. He observes us all. He rules by law. 
and he clears or forgives the guilty. But it says, as we forgive our debtors. So let's make this observation. Christians, Christian people, are a forgiven and forgiving people. In fact, it's very doubtful that if someone harbors hatred ongoing towards someone else, that that person has really experienced the forgiveness and love of God the Father. Christian people have been forgiven much and are hasty to forgive. Because God is such towards us. He is quick to forgive and show us his mercy. He is also our delivering father. We pray to him that we would not be led into temptation but delivered from evil. And I, I said, okay, well, that's got to be a Greek translational thing. I'll, I'll go you know, find something. Some commentator has said, yeah, it's not really leading. It's blah, blah, blah. You know, it's something, ooze, whatever, ends in a ooze. And, it, you know, that's the Greek word. And I was surprised to find lead us not into temptation is a very good translation of the Greek at that point. And so let's work our way through that thought for just a little bit. Why are we being, why are we encouraged to pray, lead us not into temptation? Was God going to lead us into temptation? Was that the first plan and then we're asking for to kind of back out of that? No, not at all. Let's just read a couple of other passages. I think as we read through some scripture and then I uh, provide you some quotation from Charles Spurgeon may help your thoughts on this. James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Of course, the Bible also says about Jesus, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's turn back into the Psalms. Psalm 141 in verse 4. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. So what we're learning as we pull these passages together is that God himself, this is not a request in which we ask God not to tempt us, but rather in the leading, in his leading of our lives to guide our paths in such a way that those temptations, whether moral temptations or trials and troubles, would not just be our constant lot but that the Lord would guide us out of those scenario situations in which we are most prone to fall. We are asking the Lord to keep us safe from ourselves. C.H. Spurgeon says, If God does not tempt man, how can it be proper to pray? Lead us not into temptation. Dear brethren, do but notice the text does not say, Tempt us not. If it did, then there would be a difficulty. 
And it does not say, Lord, tempt us not. But it says, lead us not into temptation. And there is a vast difference between leading into temptation and actually tempting. God tempts no man. For God to tempt in the sense of enticing to sin is inconsistent with his nature and altogether contrary to his known character. But for God to lead us into these conflicts, those conflicts with evil, which we call temptations, is not only possible, but usual. Full often, the great captain of salvation leads us by his providence to battlefields where we must face the full array of evil and conquer through the blood of the Lamb. And this leading into temptation is by divine grace, overruled for our good, since by being tempted, we grow strong in grace and patience. So we pray that the Lord would spare us from ourselves. We pray that He would spare us from moral temptation or great trials and troubles like Job had in which he stood firm to begin with and wouldn't curse the Lord. But his faith grew weak as that trial grew oppressive and he began to question the righteous plan of God. And we all will do that under great distress. We fail, we're weak. And trials and temptations come to us daily, even momentarily at times. I don't know how my darling wife and the ladies who stay at home with so many hoodlums running around, I don't know how they do that. I've tried. Like, my Christianity is a lot smaller than I thought. (laughs) That's hard. Those are trials. Those are temptations. And though that's something we can pray about and towards and ask our Lord to reduce those trials and temptations in life. Just the fa- daily family interactions. There are three things that came to my mind as we sort of sew up this passage, as we look back on what it means to pray to God our Father with reverence, submission, and dependence that befits trusting Him as our loving, capable Father. We look to Him, we pray to Him. The first is, don't pray like the heathen, as Christ points out here. You pray to a loving, personal Father in heaven. Remember, you pray to Him. He knows you. And He wants you to pray to Him and confess your sin and call on Him and be forgiven and be delivered and be fed. He is there for that. That is what He does daily in His love for you and me. So let's pray to God our Father as personal and real. Then, secondly... Our praying to God the Father, our view of God as our Father, that's all imperfect. Never will be perfect before God the Father. This is not uh, a message so we can learn to get it right on how we view God. Christ has done that. He is the perfect Son of the perfect Father. There's nothing to be added to His work. We lean on Him and look to Him. But oh, praise God that when Jesus came... He is not the one who loves us, protecting us from the Father, but in fact, He is the perfect expression of the Father's love to us. And then note, last of all, there is some 
you might say, progression through the text. Someone pointed this out to me, kind of helped me think through it a little bit more. There's some progression in the text of going from daily bread and care of the body to care for the soul in forgiveness and in deliverance. God does, as the Father of all, the Creator of the earth, God is, in that sense, generally speaking, the Father of all. And He does cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. All men, really, and women are fed by God above, who causes the earth to be productive. So, that may be so. And some of you here may know God in that way, in just general provision and care for you. But do you also know Him as the forgiving Father? Do you also know Him as the delivering Father? This is a personal, real relationship with God the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. And if that's not what you know, you only know that general giving of God in the most broad way, then it's time to call on Him as a forgiving and delivering Father. Let's pray.